0: Following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Well, if you've been with us the past couple of weeks, you know that we have been making our way through sections of the letter of 1 John, a book in the New Testament. This is the, uh, typically, it's been the epistle reading for uh, this season of the year in the lectionary, which we've been using to guide our path through Scripture. And we are celebrating the season of Easter. Remember, we're talking about tide That's the fancy churchy word for it, but Easter as a season, practicing resurrection as a way of life, uh, a, a whole season of resurrection, not just one special holy day, although we did have that, and it was a beautiful day. Uh, and this, this letter of First John that we've been in for the past few weeks is really a very beautiful text. It's like a deep river flowing with spiritual truth alternating between heartwarming reassurances and heart-rending exhortations. And if you've been traveling with us through this book, uh, you've probably felt really warm and wonderful at times reading these words and hearing these words read. And then at other times you've been like, whoa, that was kind of cold. And that is when scripture is at its best, when it's doing both of those things in our hearts and in our lives. And it continues with that somewhat today. I want to continue today with 1 John 3, 16 through 24, this is, once again, the epistle reading assigned to us by the lectionary. Uh, by the way, I haven't said this in a while, but if you don't know what the lectionary is or how to find the texts of it, Google is your friend. You can just do a search for lectionary. The first result will be uh, a website that publishes the lectionary texts for the week at all, uh, all the time. And I very strongly encourage you, if you want to be more engaged with how we uh, work with Scripture on Sundays, to be reading these texts leading up to uh, Sunday, and sometimes they fit together really neatly. Today is kind of one of those days, and other times it's you just kind of go. I'm not sure why these are together, but it's we're reading the Bible, and that's good. So, um, I want to use this text today, First John three sixteen through twenty four, which I think is on what page nine ninety. If you'd like to look at it in a red Bible, you can. Let me just double check my page number there. I have it in my notes, but. Pages where it exists in this Bible are stuck together. <laughs> oh boy! Go to seminary to learn how to work with the Bible, and this is not what I had in mind. There it is. Okay. Yes, page uh, page 990 and 991. If you want to look at it in red Bibles, uh, I will be reading it par- portions of it aloud, so uh, you can just be a listener if you prefer that. But I want to use this as a basis of a reflection for who Jesus is for us today. Who uh, or what is Jesus for us? Many things, of course, and we could look at lots of different passages of Scripture and see who Jesus is for us and what Jesus is for us. But there are three today that I want to identify from this particular passage of Scripture, and they will move us from a very basic concept of Christianity as obedience to a much more complicated concept uh, of Christianity as a contemplative way of life. Now, both of those things are important, but one of them is a lot more difficult to understand and implement than the other. So we're going to take it in sections, and we'll think together about three things that define who Jesus is for us. Right? So let's dive right in. We start with verse 16, 1 John 3:16 says this, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. In many ways, this one verse of Scripture could uh, contain the entirety of our faith. If we applied it to every area of life, I think we would get most of the way there. But here it is right in the beginning. The first thing that Jesus is for us is what? An example, right? Jesus is our example of what God's love is for us, the way that we know what love is. It says, we know love by this. He laid down his life for us. And he is our example of what love that we have should be for other people, for all people. Jesus became our example first here in his teaching. Jesus is the one, after all, who said, Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And he became our example in his life. The exemplification of that teaching is when he went to his own death like a lamb led to slaughter making no sound, no gesture of protest, committing no act of retributive violence. He was our example of the teaching that he gave us. So thanks to having Jesus as an example, I think the calling on our lives as Christian people is actually quite clear. There's not really a lot of debate about it. It's not, you don't have to have a seminary degree to understand what's being said here. We are to lay down our lives for one another... Because that's what Jesus said to do, and that's what Jesus did. In that example, the calling is clear. But, as is so often the case with things that are clear, it's not necessarily easy, is it? Because listen to what John says right after that. We could have stopped with one verse. I could have preached on 1 John 3.16, and we would have had a lot to say about that and a lot to learn from it. But what comes next is this. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help. Little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. Why couldn't he have just left it with that very clear but very theoretical statement? From verse 16, no, he has to get all specific. He has to get up all up in our business. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's good goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help. Now, if you're like me, you'd have to use both hands, all ten fingers to count the number of times you failed to obey that commandment just in the past week. How many people did you and I see in the past seven days who were in need and we did nothing? Have you, have you gotten on or off 490 this week? How many of us talk a good game about caring for the poor and but we do nothing? How many of us think that, that voting for the right person or criticizing the right person who's been elected for their policies regarding caring for the poor is all that we need to do to engage with public policy in the world? That, by the way, counts as words, not as deeds or action. Little children... Let us love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. I love how John writes this stuff. He's so gentle. Little children, you are messing up so bad. Loving, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. That's where the rubber meets the road. And that is what takes us from clarity to difficulty. That's what makes it, yes, it's still clear, but it is not easy And I think we often succumb to the despair that can come from knowing we have failed so often, so consistently, so spectacularly to obey this clear command from Jesus. It is so easy for us to say, oh, I'm so awful. I can't can't even go one week obeying this commandment. But I want to encourage you, don't slip beneath the waves of that despair just yet because we haven't gotten to the second thing that Jesus is for us. The first thing that Jesus is for us is is our example, both in his teaching and in his life and death. But what else is Jesus? Let's move on to verse 19. And by this we will know that we are from the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything, beloved, beloved. If our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God. Here's the second thing that I see Jesus being for me and for you in this passage, and that is our defender. Jesus is our defender, specifically our defender against condemnation. I love the stories in the Gospels where Jesus is the defender of somebody who's being condemned by religious zealots. Those are my favorite passages of Scripture. Most of us know the story of John 8. We might not know it as the story in John 8, but most of us know the story of the woman who was caught in the act of adultery and dragged before Jesus by the uh, teachers of the law because the, the teaching of the law was clear that those who were caught in adultery, well, that's a capital offense. And you remember what Jesus said. but he who is without sin be the first one to throw a stone at her. Let's execute the death sentence that she deserves and the one who gets to start the proceedings is the one who has no sin. And they all remembered they had something else to do that day. One by one, starting with the oldest and wisest, they walked away. And the last person to do so was the real loudmouthed one who posts to Twitter all the time about how awful everything is in the world. (laughs) And he walked away too. And then Jesus said one of the most beautiful things in all of Scripture. He, He looked to the woman and said, Where are your accusers? Doesn't anybody condemn you? And she said, No one, sir. And he said to her, Then neither do I condemn you. Get up and leave your life of sin behind. Jesus is our defender against those forces and individuals who would accuse us. By the way, did you know that the, the Greek word for the devil, when you see the devil in the, in the New Testament, it's diabolos, and, and what that word means in Greek is a slanderer or an accuser. So it seems like the, the uh, innate tendency of the powers of evil in the universe, are oriented towards slander and accusation. And when you hear that accusation coming at you, that's telling you you're defined by the things you've done, that is from the devil. And that's where Jesus gets in between you and the accusation and is your defender. That's not to say that we should never listen when people call us to do better in our obedience to Christ's commands. See, that's the opposite problem. You know the pendulum swing tendency, that effect, right? Where if, a, if people are overemphasizing way over here on this side, we swing the pendulum and we want to find the middle and whoops, now it's way over here, right? So yes, there is a tendency in the church to say, okay, uh, the, the religious experts, the zealots, they are um, they're accusing people way too much. Let's, let's kind of rein that in and then oops, now we don't care. Whatever, whatever you want to do is fine. That's not what I'm advocating for. I mean, we get, this, we, we get a, a kind of a prevention against the overswinging of that pendulum right here in the passage. We, we read it a minute ago. How is it that God's love could abide in anybody who has the world's goods and sees a brother and sister in need and yet refuses help? I think that's a pretty good and fair uh, analysis of the way that we live our lives. That's a pretty clear call to do different and do better. And after all, the woman was guilty of the sin she was accused of, and Jesus did tell her to leave that behind when she got up off the ground that day. But here's the problem. When people start talking like our sins give us our identity, that's the problem. She is an adulterer. He is a thief. They are hypocrites. When you put that verb to be in there, between your name and your sin, and it starts to define who you are, you know. You know. That's the work of the devil. That's what Jesus is here to defend us from. That's when we need Jesus, to drive off all of those accusers. Because... It's not just an external condemnation that brings us to our knees in shame, is it? Jesus is also our defender against the condemnation of our own hearts. That's actually what the passage says. took a long way around the barn to get there. He will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. Not when people out there condemn us. Not even when the devil condemns us, but when our hearts condemn us. Because if you've heard enough people outside condemning you, you begin to believe them, don't you? You begin to condemn yourself, and that is never what Jesus wants for us. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God. How is it that we could all hear the the, the call to obedience? it was given earlier and all of us could say and murmur in agreement we have not even made it through the week without caring for people and laying down our lives the way Jesus taught us and told us how is it that we could all agree that, that we fail in that way and yet still be in a place where we could say we have boldness before God and that's actually the third thing that's where things get really complicated and confusing and difficult, and it might take us the rest of our lives to master it, and guess what? We might not ever get there. How many would like to sign up for a lifetime of trying to figure something out with no guarantee you ever will? Right? I feel like if that was the call at, the, at these evangelistic crusades, there'd be way fewer people at the altar. <laughs> but I actually think that's what we're called to as people living out the gospel in the world. Jesus is our example. Jesus is our defender. There's one more thing that this passage points to Jesus being, and I think it's the hardest to comprehend and the hardest to live out. So I want to look at the last couple of verses in this passage. Let's see what we find. Verse 24. Right after it says, we have boldness before God, it also says this, and we receive from him whatever we ask, because we obey his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as he has commanded us. All who obey his commandments abide in him, and he abides in them, and by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit that he has given us. Now, this business of receiving from him whatever we ask, I find this really challenging. I find it really confusing. Uh, There are times in my life when I found it very troubling. It, it And it's not the only place it appears, or, or it would be a little easier to ignore, but Jesus himself talks about this in John's Gospel. John fifteen seven. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It's almost as if the person who is sitting there when him, with Jesus when Jesus said that wrote this letter that we're reading today, isn't it? This is challenging and confusing and maybe even troubling because I know that I am not alone in this. Every single one of you in this room has prayed to Jesus and asked for something and had the response be negative. Every single one of you has asked Jesus for something at one point in your life and not gotten it. Am I wrong? Please raise your hand if you have never asked Jesus and, uh, for something and not gotten it. There's a lot of negatives in that sentence. Sorry. Sorry. But nobody raised their hand, which was what I was going for. (laughs) It was like a quadruple negative, wasn't it? (laughs) Sometimes you ask Jesus for something and and you get the exact opposite. You're like, oh. If that has ever happened to, to you in any significant way about anything that really mattered then you probably read verse 22 with some amount of pain. And that pain may drive you to cynicism or doubt or even to outright unbelief. Because how could you read those words? If you abide in me, ask for whatever you want, it will be given to you. And then ask him for something and not get it. And not have an existential crisis there as a result ultimately I don't think that that verse means that we're supposed to expect Jesus to give us whatever we want like a genie who grants us wishes it can't mean that because my own life has proven that to be false but that is what it sounds like at first I think this is one of those verses in the Bible where it's helpful to remember a rule that one of my seminary professors gave me. Are you ready for a good seminary rule for interpreting the Bible? The Bible doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means. Isn't that helpful? So, yeah, thanks. <laughs> That's what I said, too. The Bible doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means. Oh, man. Uh, because the, the import of that rule is that you have to do some work with the text. And we don't want to do any work. We just want it to mean what it says and have it be clear. We can make a bumper sticker out of it. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Hmm. But I think the meaning here of this particular verse is much subtler, much more complex, much deeper. What I think it suggests is that the lines between Believing in Jesus and obeying Jesus and trusting Jesus and following the example of Jesus and having the peace that Jesus provides in the face of condemnation and self-doubt. between The lines between all of those things and even knowing the Holy Spirit, the line between all of those things becomes softer and softer and eventually become non-existent as we come to know Jesus more, as we live in Him and as He lives in us. This is the third thing that Jesus is for us today, if we can allow ourselves to believe it, Jesus is our resting place. And if we rest in Him, if we live with Him, if we allow Him to live in us, if we abide in Him as He abides in us, our wills become so intertwined with His will that we receive what we ask for because all we want is what He wants. And He wants all that we want. That song we sang earlier, I love that line, every cell in me must respond to the rhythm of your heart. I feel like, I don't know how many, how many cells are in the human body? Some biologist in the room must know, right? I don't know. I feel like five cells in my body (laughs) respond to the beating of Jesus' heart. And there's more than that. I've got to rein in those other cells. I am so not there yet of abiding in Jesus, of Jesus truly being my resting place. I am fine with Jesus being my example. I've got it. I understand it. Obey him. Yes, I get it. I fail at it, but I get it. I am so happy Jesus is my defender because there have been lots of times in my life when, uh, when somebody else or, or even my own heart tried to condemn me for the many, many, many things I have done wrong. But Jesus is my resting place. I am really struggling with that one. And I expect I might be for the rest of my life. Because true contemplative Christianity means you are living with Jesus, sitting with Jesus, abiding with Jesus, and Him with you. Wherever you are, whatever's going on, whatever storm is raging around you, whatever temptations are afflicting you, whatever pain is in your body or your heart or your soul or your mind, you're resting in Jesus. And when you get to that state, is when it really becomes true that you ask him for whatever you wish and you receive it because it's already what he wants. So to the extent that there's ever a debate between works and faith, and boy has there been that debate in the life of the church, I think it misses the point. That's why one of the Letters in the New Testament can say we're saved by faith, not by works. And another letter in the New Testament can say show me, your works, or show me your faith without any works and I'll show you something that's dead. That's a paraphrase, but you get the point. To the extent that there's ever a debate between caring for the poor on one hand and prayer, it misses the point. And if you don't see that yet, if you're, if, you're, if you're unable to accept what I just said, I think Jesus needs to draw you a little closer. He certainly needs to draw me a little closer because I see that distinction about every, every, every other second my mind changes on that. To the extent that there's ever a debate between action and contemplation, it misses the point. The point is that all of these things are opposite sides of the very same coin. This is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. Head, heart, and love one another. Body. Get moving. Because love is activated by our action. Love is defined by our activity. This is his commandment. What is his commandment? This is. That's a plural verb, isn't it? This is. Not these are his commandments. This is his one commandment, that we should believe and love. Those are two things, (laughs) but they're the same. This is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. They are the same. Jesus is our example. Jesus is our defender. And if we will allow it to be true for us, Jesus is our resting place. Let's pray. Blessed Jesus, we are so thankful For this challenge from Scripture, even though it is hard to understand, even harder to apply, we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the mercy that we receive, that it would become true for us. Bless now these elements of bread and wine and juice, that they would truly be the body and blood of the Savior sacrifice that saves us and the world from our sin. May it empower us, strengthen us, nourish our souls to do the work that you have called us to do, to believe in you and to love one another. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, as the band comes and leads us in another song or two, we do have our communion table open for all who are seeking to follow Jesus in this place. Artisan's open table is not uh, fenced by membership uh, in any church, including our own. If you would like to receive the grace and mercy on offer from Jesus Christ, our Savior, please come and receive it. Dip a piece of the bread in one of the cups and take it right here at the table and uh, I'll remind you that there will be a member of the prayer team who would be happy to pray with you at the back of the room and that your children are probably ready to have you go and collect them if they're uh, in the classrooms at the other end of the building. Let's respond to the Spirit in the many ways the Spirit might be speaking to us and continue to worship God. Amen. Our table is open. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.